Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 15th October with me, Ian Welsh. A bumper episode this week. A few days ago I spoke with Scott Steedman, Director General Standards at BSI, about the recent London Declaration, led by BSI and the International Organisation for Standardisation, better known as the ISO, which will embed climate science in business standards. This move is designed to really help companies drive forward their work meeting the Paris Climate Goals and to navigate through the business regulatory landscape to achieve them. Also coming up is some insight into links between climate change and human health from Una Kent, Vice President for CSR International at Walgreens Boots Alliance, in conversation with Innovation Forum's Toby Webb, ahead of a free-to-attend online event on the 20th of October next week. Coming up first, though, are some thoughts from this week's Innovation Forum's Future for Plastics conference, where I wrapped up some of the emerging themes from the event. I'm just going to try and put together some points that have stood out for me over the past three days. Thinking back to Monday, there seemed to be quite a big disconnect between expectations from NGOs. We heard from Greenpeace and brand strategy. There's still perhaps a kind of an absolute approach versus a compromise approach. And I think that's something that's a, there's still a bit more compromise required around that. Overall, the burden of driving change and absorbing upfront costs, I think there's been consensus that these really should be absorbed by business and government and certainly not by consumers. There is, of course, a risk that consumers can end up paying twice when brand costs, such as through extended producer responsibility, just get passed on to consumers when they might be already paying through local taxis for curbside recycling. There needs to be some thought there. There also, I think, needs to be a greater need for brands to be given more input into shaping those sort of schemes. There's been a lot of talk about targets for recyclability, but the fact that something can be recycled doesn't mean anything without the right infrastructure being in place. Ease of process for consumers and end users is essential. We've also heard a lot over the past couple of days of a desire to align around using fewer polymer types and an acceptance of making this a non-competitive issue. And the Consumer Goods Forum's Golden Design Rules and the material collaboration work of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation were cited a number of times for their thinking around systems that unify packaging design so that plastics are more valuable to recyclers. Perhaps this really is a solution for the material valuing problem that's been a head-scratcher for some time. Somebody else that was a definite favourite is the Belgian Extended Producer Responsibility Scheme, a great example for other countries to learn from. Everyone certainly seems to think that over the past couple of days. It was regularly put up on the, on the chat. Chemical recycling, very quickly, that's going to be an inevitable part of the mix, but the impacts must be managed and it really can't be seen as a licence for business as usual, as indeed no solution should be seen as a licence for business as usual. Plastic targets and material choices, but they need to be viewed through a holistic lens. We heard a number of times that you know, they need to be thought within the context of broader things. For example, thinking about carbon targets. I mean, there's no point in solving a plastics problem if you simply then impact your carbon. There are a number of notes of caution. One that was pointed out to me is the danger that things will get worse before they get better. And we heard how it's going to take time before the supply of new materials come on stream to replace the likes of high-density polyethylene and other plastic products that simply just do their job very well. The need to target approaches kept coming up. Don't be planning for sophisticated recycling in markets where there's no efficient, simple waste management infrastructure in place. Fix that bit first. But on the other hand, we do need to plan for the infrastructure of the future. Ambition is essential to get the systems right. So to achieve 60% recycling rates, don't set up something that won't even get to 40%. Got to be ambitious. There's still a sense that a lot of the action is driven by the consumer perception of all plastic is bad. 
So there's a need to get beyond that still. And education, I think, remains, remains the key for that. And related to this is the unintended consequence risk of coming out of plastics for food packaging, food packaging and, and other examples. In the same way that we don't want to turn a plastics waste problem into a carbon problem, we certainly don't want to turn a drive to replace plastics into a food waste crisis. There must be a risk of that. Coming up next week on Wednesday 20th of October at 2pm is a free-to-attend workshop co-hosted by Innovation Forum and Walgreens Boots Alliance, considering the links between climate change and human health. As a preview to some of the themes we'll be discussing, my colleague Toby Webb spoke with Una Kent, WBA's Vice President for CSR International. I'm looking forward to a short but informative conversation on climate change and human health related to an event we're doing together next week, which is free for listeners. And listeners, you can find out more about it at the end of the podcast. Una, before we get into the event itself and the issues, just tell us a bit about yourself, what you do. And for those who aren't familiar with Walgreens Boots Alliance, just give us perhaps a a brief overview of what the company is doing. I've been with Walgreens Boots Alliance for 10 years now. I started in boots. Walgreens Boots Alliance is effectively an organisation that's across 17 countries and it has around 330,000 employees. We definitely see our role as a health-centred organisation, working in the communities we serve in every single one of those countries to help look after people's health and well-being. We're a retail pharmacy organisation, which means we also have significant retail outreach with 13,000 stores around the world. We're a large company, but we are very passionate about corporate social responsibility. And about four months ago, I moved into this new role, focusing entirely on that for our international businesses. Obviously, the Boots itself and Walgreens has a very long history as organisations and alliances as well. And I know that climate change and other issues are coming up the consumer agenda. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But you know, we're doing this event together next week on the 20th of October at two o'clock UK for a few hours on climate change and human health. We've subtitled it, How Business Can Empower, Educate and Build Community Resilience. And we've got about 700 people signed up. So you can still join us for next week. Just go to innovationforum.co.uk and you can find a link. But Una, what's the motivation for WBA to support this? Because you're putting the financial resources behind this event so that we can host it. Why are you doing that? Many, many reasons. But of course, the primary one is, is we are a health centred organisation. That's what drives us. That's what gets our people up in the morning to look after people's health and well-being. As a topic, climate change and human health and that intersection, we've been looking at that for some time now. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago at Climate Week in New York, we published a report looking specifically at the role of the private sector in responding to the consequences of climate impact on human health. And I think we're not the only ones. The medical industry, and just a couple of weeks ago, at the beginning of September, over 233 medical journals all simultaneously published an article asking government to help tackle action because they saw In their words, there was a catastrophic harm to health that was coming as a consequence of climate change if we didn't act. COP26 also gives us a phenomenal opportunity when world leaders, the public, the private sectors, they're all coming together to talk about this issue. So the timing just feels right to really put this into the fore and to see what we can do to drive sustainable, resilient change. 
when we started planning this event, we had lots of brainstorming meetings about what does that actually mean for business? It's not easy to figure out what a large or smaller company can do to try and empower consumers, educate them on the risks and help build resilience. And indeed, try and ask consumers to go beyond where they are at the moment in terms of asking for change. Perhaps we could just run through two or three of the topics we're talking about at the event so we can kind of bring this to life, perhaps help some of our listeners understand what it means in terms of a real substantive discussion. When we were talking about it, we were trying to ensure that we constructed an agenda that would bring together great thought leaders from across multiple spaces and areas. So we've got, you know, academics and as well as private and public sector and other individuals who are going to bring, we hope, a really exciting conversation together. We focused it on three key areas for this one. The first one, just looking at what is climate health and what are the issues related to climate and health intersection and how is it that business can maybe lean in and make a difference. And then the second one was really around the imperative of collaboration. If WBA has learned nothing over the years through our phenomenal um, partnerships with organisations like Macmillan or Vitamin Angels or the United Nations Foundation, these are huge partnerships that we have, that the power of collaboration to come up with imaginative, innovative, creative solutions to some of these problems is really the the heart of it. So the second panel is going to look a little bit about how that collaborative imperative can help. And then the final thing is really about, as you mentioned, consumers and helping and empowering consumers. We definitely hear from our customers that they want to do more, they want to take more action. Through the pandemic, people have learned to be even more conscious of their and their family's health, but also even more conscious of their role in helping take care of the planet. The third panel will look at how we can drive behaviour change and make it easier for consumers to engage in the topic. Yes, I'm particularly looking forward to that third session. And we've got a number of speakers for the event. I'm not going to run through them all here, but it's not just WBA people and, and academics and health experts. We've also got representatives from GSK, from Sky, and the Behavioural Science Director from Unilever, Richard Wright, who's always fascinating when we have them at our events. So really looking forward to working out in a bit more depth what we all know about pulling the right levers to get consumer action. What would be your hopes for an outcome for this event? We've talked about why we're doing it, because it's in line with your company's ethos and work. But what do we hope it will achieve in terms of adding to the debate? I mean, I think like the calibre of the panellists is really going to be high and exciting. So first and foremost, a really great discussion and conversation, maybe helping some of the listeners and people to think through different lenses about what the issue is and come to terms with it through different sensibilities. That one would definitely be important. But, you know, I think at the end of the day, and it sounds a bit cliched to say it, but collaboration and coming together in partnership to resolve and to face these issues and to be creative about how we can drive change. I think that's the heart of it. So I'm really hoping that out of it we hear great discussion, some great ideas to move forward in a collaborative way and hopefully the beginning of a long-term discussion amongst these organisations and the people that are coming together on the 20th. Thanks, Una. As always with Innovation Forum events, we're going to get straight into it and we're going to focus on practical things that can be done because, of course, we're all aware of the climate change imperative. What we need to do is, and this is what this event is trying to do from our point of view, 
we need to talk about really practical things we can do to make change happen now. So I hope you can all join us. Thanks to Una for her insights. If you do want to join the event, it's on the 20th of October at 2pm UK time, 3pm European time. You can sign up by going to the Innovation Forum website where you should find a link. And we look forward to seeing you there. We've got about six, 700 people signed up already. And we're looking forward to a fascinating debate and discussions, and we'll see where it leads from there. If you do miss it, we can send you an agenda link if you sign up anyway, so that you can then access the recordings afterwards at your leisure. You know, thanks a lot for your time. And Innovation Forum listeners, thanks so much for yours. Hopefully, we'll see some of you next week online at the event. Thank you. As Toby said, full details of how to sign up for this free workshop are online at innovationforum.co.uk. Something else we're all looking forward to is Innovation Forum's flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference, which will return from the 30th of November to 2nd December. 300 plus delegates will be learning from Insight of Tesco, Dole Foods, Museum Mass, the European Commission, RSPO, Mars and many more. For full details of how to save £75 on passes, go to the Innovation Forum website. A few days ago, I spoke with BSI Director General Standards, Scott Steedman, about the recent London Declaration that will embed climate change consideration into business standards and help to enable decarbonisation at pace and scale. BSI was at the forefront of the recent London Declaration to embed climate change consideration into all future standards. What is this setting out to achieve and why? We thought that the London Declaration was an important commitment which the standards organisations, the international standards system, should make to demonstrate that we are embedding climate science in all our work and encouraging our committees of experts all over the world to review existing standards and to ensure that when we're considering new standards, we're really bringing climate issues to the fore and we're considering all aspects of sustainable development. What's the London Declaration then? What was the big announcement? The Declaration itself is a commitment by standards developing organisations led by BSI and ISO and its members to review existing standards, to encourage and to develop a process for our committees all over the world to review existing standards and in considering new standards and new scopes of work, new versions, new iterations, revisions of standards, to ensure that standards are assessed to make sure that they are considering climate science and they are going to do the very best for the planet. How will this move help achieve the Paris Climate Agreement's targets? Well, standards, of course, are serving business needs and regulators' requirements all over the world today. The catalogue of British standards, which are almost all international standards now, numbers around 50,000. Many of those are technical standards. But really, from a climate change perspective, there may be some hundreds or thousands of standards that are really important around how organisations assess their carbon footprint, for example, how they manage their environmental impact, how they look after their people, their supply chains, all the issues of sustainability in addition to climate change. And we wanted to ensure that in making and shaping standards of the future, these aspects were right at the front of our committee's considerations. By ensuring that companies can have standards that are really guiding them in the right direction, then we can be very confident that organisations everywhere will work together and, and accelerate their journey towards net zero and towards the targets of the Paris Climate Agreement. 
Was it this move towards reinforcing the role of climate in standards and the thinking about climate issues when you were developing standards? Is that why the London Declaration was necessary? The international standards system is a network of over 150 countries. Every country has one national standards body and BSI is privileged to be appointed by British government to represent the UK in that system. So these countries cover a very wide range of economies, developing countries, developed countries, east, west, north, south. Standards are not just for developed countries. They are really the essence of the global economy. And as we transition to a digital economy, that brings countries closer and closer together. So what we wanted to do was to really shine a light on the whole issue of climate change in our work. Standards have often been considered to be rather invisible, possibly even something that's done by somebody else. And so in this declaration, we would try and really motivate the national standards bodies all over the world through the ISO community to sit up, wake up and to discuss with their own committees and their own stakeholders in their own countries what they're trying to do and how their work will help address their climate ambitions. The role of the national standards body in country is to engage with stakeholders from all walks of life, from consumers, environmental experts, um, academia, regulators, industry, of course, and to bring those stakeholders together to reach consensus on what good practices are needed. So the point of the declaration was really to flag that and to give the national standards bodies an opportunity to have new conversations with their stakeholders, their governments and industry and consumer communities to refresh their understanding and to bring this all to the fore. So is it going to be then that sort of increased communication that perhaps on a more day-to-day -day level will enable future standards to help companies decarbonise and move towards net zero position on emissions, that continual dialogue that you just mentioned? I think the dialogue with stakeholders is fundamental, but helping the stakeholders understand the system within which standards are helping them deliver their organizational performance is key to this. Making sure that people realize that it's all about standards, including regulations, whether you're an SME, whether you're a global corporation, whether you're a government, whether you're a university, it's all about standards, including regulations. And those standards will help you achieve your goals, just as they will, in some cases, be obligations that your government has imposed on you. So there's a system within which organisations are operating. The idea here of raising awareness of that system is to help people to optimise their strategy, their performance, their ambitions, and, and to navigate through the really quite complex standards and regulatory environments within which we all have to live and work. So we don't have very long to do anything in relation to climate action. We have to act really now. So I wanted to ensure that the standards part of the business landscape was much better understood and that we could work together with business, with governments and with consumers to agree what the optimum strategy would be to ensure businesses did their bit as fast as possible and as effectively as possible to tackle climate change. I think you're right that for companies to really develop the tools and to really engage with climate and decarbonise is going to require completely optimised strategy across the board. There's a, almost an unprecedented level of optimisation going to be required across business sectors. How will the ambitions of the declaration play out on a practical level? What are the kind of day-to-day -day practical steps look like? We will review and update our processes to make sure that the committees that oversee 
our business standards. In BSI, we have over 1,200 committees working on standards, and they're working on around 7,000 standards at any one time. I want us to ensure that we have good process in the committees for just having the conversation about how the standard that they are working on can make a contribution and is there anything more that we need to do in the standard to ensure that the user of the standard is given the best possible guidance. Within that vast area of work there are some specific standards that actually really could make a big impact and a part of the challenge here is getting awareness raised across the business community about the value of those standards, for example, in supply chain standards and risk assessment and risk management and business continuity, all sorts of issues around the operation businesses that would support climate action. So we want to make sure that the processes that we are following for reviewing and updating standards as they come along and for assessing where there are gaps are optimised. What will constitute success in terms of the impact of the London Declaration? Success for the London Declaration would mean that we had an agreed method across the international standards community for reviewing and updating our standards and for seeing that as a dynamic process which will evolve over time. We would be looking to reach out into new and very important areas new technologies, for example, in the renewable sector, in in energy, mobility, perhaps, but also in the financial sector, sustainable finance, green finance standards, voluntary carbon markets. There are all kinds of areas where international standards, common agreements will accelerate, will enable the world to accelerate towards achieving their climate goals. But those standards are not well known today. And in many areas, there are still conflicts, there isn't a consensus yet, and we want to bring that consensus together. I think there are huge opportunities here and success would look like a much greater level of awareness amongst governments and business leaders of the role that standards play in achieving their strategies and their ambitions. The sort of consensus building that you're talking about is always challenging. How do you see the role of standards developing over the coming decade and beyond 2050? We keep talking about 2030 targets, 2050 targets. As we were saying, there's so much to be done, so much strategy to be optimised between now and then. What do you see the role of standards in achieving that and how is that going to develop? Well, standards are simply a consensus of what good looks like. The standards that we develop and that we oversee through the international system, which form the backbone of British standards, are actually just a dynamic, moving consensus of what good practice looks like that business leaders can rely upon, governments can rely upon, and that represents a patent-free, neutral, technology-agnostic solution to the needs of business. They can be used by government or they can be used by industry in their supply chains through contractual obligations or just purely voluntarily. They are, in a sense, a body of knowledge of what good practice looks like at any one time. As we go forward in the decades ahead, I hope very much that business leaders will come to realise how this system works to their advantage and how governments can optimise their use of this consensus tool. So I see standards really falling away in the sense of being considered some kind of target or technical requirement. 
and and evolving into much more of a moving consensus approach where stakeholders can think what knowledge they need to achieve the goals that they have and how we can manage that with proper governance in a neutral and independent way. And what will unlock all that is the digital transformation that we see sweeping the world today, where the concept of standards as some sort of paper document or PDF of the past will disappear and standards will become simply code and there may be a human readable form of that. We are already on this journey. Actually, we are piloting what we call smart standards, machine interpretable standards. And what business leaders will simply have to do is dial up their preferences <laughs> and it will happen in the background. So through the digital workflow of our organizations, we will see standards becoming code that's embedded in the workflow of organizations, much as when you buy a washing machine, you don't buy it because of the standards, you buy it because it cleans your clothes. So in the sense that standards are simply a consensus business information tool, they are embedded in digital platforms and they will be working behind the scenes in your organization as you choose your preferences for your company to be more competitive, more productive and more sustainable and more successful. Yes, it's certainly a daunting as well as an exciting time over the coming decades, but it is vital for companies to know what good is and how to implement it. So Scott Stedman, Director General Standards at BSI, thanks very much for taking us through the details of the London Declaration and its ambitions. Thank you, Ian. Don't forget to sign up for the Climate Change and Health Workshop next week. Hope you can join us. Do go to Innovation Forum website for more information on that and for all the usual analysis and interviews. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh. Until next week, goodbye.